Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to Under Consultation, the episode by episode podcast type situations with UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and bloody hell, the Spice Girls are all over 1997. And all over Prince Charles, because hey, kinky, I am Ash Versus. And this is our prelude into Series 7 episode, which we've over the years just decided to call episode zero basically what we're going to do is cover the months between the end of series six and the start of series seven because back in the day when we started doing this like i think it was actually just series two episode one we started doing it and we were like crikey did you see the movies that we missed in the in-between series we could have talked about this we could have talked about this we could have done this and as the series and this podcast has progressed, we decided, why don't we just do an episode where we can cover the news? Because we've kind of gone from being a Games Master retrospective podcast to a 90s all-encompassing retrospective podcast through the lens of Games Master. It kind of speaks to our interest. And as we pointed out last week on the Series 6 wrap-up episode, we can probably make a podcast out of anything. Pretty much, absolutely, yeah. And as you know, some people might call them filler episodes. We call them side quests. It makes them feel more important that way. We've got a, a hell of a lot to dive into as well, because we have got from March 1st through until November 19th. So almost a full calendar year. Yeah, More than six months in this build-up to this final series of Games Master in its original run, the series that should never have been. Now, past couple of episode zeros, which... I think I called them episode zero and I did it because I love the zero when it's used in prequels. Mm-hmm. So Ring Zero, Yakuza Zero, Resident Evil Zero. That That's where it came from for me. But when we've done the last couple, they've gotten girthy. Last one was two parts. Yeah, that's that swelled to erect proportions. <laughs> Very. Too, more, more than you or I could easily handle. And I've handled my fair share. That's what the toilet walls say. But this time we're going to do it a bit different. 
Yeah, so we've previously gone through like every single release, you know, like here's all the trivia about this movie, here's all the trivia about this song, here's all the trivia about this TV show entry, you know, all this sort and the other, but it kind of, we the episode's kind of bogged down a little bit, we had to split it into two. We are still splitting this one into two, but we're refining things. What we're going to do is we're going to take you through chronologically everything that happened within that month, but then pick out little bits and pieces to share our own little anecdotes about our memories of that time and then also fun little trivia along the way. But crucially, Ash, because you and I know how to talk about things, it is still going to be two episodes. Oh, it's still going to be two episodes. Basically, what it will let us do is rather than try and talk on everything, we will get to pick our favourite or most notable bits from that timeline and focus on those. So you might not hear much about, ooh, absolute power absolute power you won't hear much about absolute power you will i suspect hear quite a bit about command and conquer red alert and probably a shocking amount about doc cotton so with that said let's kick off into march opening on the 1st of march mario 64 tops the video game charts while the following day on the second mars attacks tops the box office what is that white house is coming out live my fellow americans this is a momentous occasion it is profoundly moving to know there is intelligent life out there alien life and our world will never feel quite the same again once you believe martians please come to earth please once you rise above fear annihilate kill kill let's not be too rash then you'll be invited hi there are you interested in the White House? To meet with a new people. It's so perfect that it's happening at the beginning of the new millennium. More powerful than the might of America. I'll tell you one thing, they ain't getting a TV. More advanced than the brains of Britain. Ladies and gentlemen, this could be a cultural misunderstanding. But be prepared for a few changes to what we know and love. Tom <laughs> Jones, right? It ain't on you, you as we must learn to dance Girls, get out! to a new tune. No, we couldn't have had that during Series 6, could we? Although we did get it as a news item. So we got to talk about it a lot there. And I think we, we actually did talk quite a bit about it, talked about the stop motion, the Harryhausen-inspired effects, the transition to CGI effects. But whilst I was reading around and flowing around the internet, something I found out that I didn't realise is that originally it wasn't going to be Mars Attacks. Was it going to be Dinosaurs Attack? Correctamundo. Because Jurassic Park was big. <laughs> no, that's actually why it didn't happen. Oh, interesting. Because you had the dinosaur attack trading cars from the 1980s, which were just as nasty as the Mars attacks. In fact, in some cases, even nastier. And then in 1991, Eclipse Comics released the first of what was going to be a three-issue run of Dinosaur Attacks. It was going to be the storyline portrayed in the trading cards turned into a miniseries. Only issue one was ever released. But at the end of that issue, it was implied that there would be a movie adaptation. And the issue itself notes and says that Joe Dante was attached to turn the cards and comic into a movie. And then later, Tim Burton was attached to it. However, Jurassic Park becoming a massive thing in 1993 kind of switched Tim Burton off. We're kind of lucky, really, that Independence Day didn't happen earlier because I could see the same thing happening again and it would have 
denied us what is one of my favourite films of the 90s and a film that, I would argue, despite its mixed reception and box office at the time, holds up better now than Independence Day does. And before we get emails, I love both of them, but I think Mars Attacks has a real timeless quality to it because it's kind of in that nondescript past-future 50s and 60s design aesthetic, but with some concessions to modern technology. It's a really, really weird way of going about it, but it works. Like, I really agree that Mars Attacks has aged better than, than Independence Day, and I think that comes from that, and I've said this before on the show, I still don't know whether or not Roland Ebrick knows that people find ID4 a bit funny because it's quite cheesy at times, but Mars Attacks is purposefully made that way. So it knows exactly what it is, and it does it to absolute perfection. Like, I think it is a wonderful movie. It's really funny. The action's really good, and the special effects rule. And it's got, you know, that amazing 50s disaster movie-esque thing of, like, put loads of stars in and then see which one of them makes it to the end. I think it is a masterpiece of 90s sci-fi comedy that really, really holds up. And with Independence Day, of course, we get a president that's, you know, a man of the people. He's flawed, but he's willing to put his life on the line for the country. He is a proper Hollywood movie leader. He's the sort of guy most people wish they could vote for. Whereas Mars Attacks, the world leaders as portrayed, particularly the American president, boy howdy, ineptitude is his middle name. And he absolutely biffs this, and as a result, gets quite spectacularly murdered in the movie. And as an actor, twice no less. It is also a movie where, you know, all the scientists get it wrong, and all the journalists get it wrong and like all of these people that are supposedly the people that are within power are all the ones that get it wrong and die and it's up to the country bumpkin in his trailer and his nan's record are the ones that really save the day and tom jones oh and let's not forget tom jones as well of course tom jones funny enough speaking of tom jones i was recently reading through an old uh, wrestling observer newsletter for uh, the patreon podcast i do for my day job and they were talking about The Rock's movies that he was doing. He was on the set of Doom doing an interview. And in that, he was talking about two other movies that he was getting ready for. One of which was a sci-fi movie called Human Species, where the, he's on a zoo and an alien planet that has got lots of other different alien species on it. And he is just part of the zoo exhibit. That, that movie didn't get made. And another movie that also didn't get made was his Johnny Bravo movie, mm. where the general conceit of the movie was he was going to go to Las Vegas thinking that this singer was his dad, but the punchline at the end of the movie is his dad is actually Tom Jones. I reckon Tom Jones would have absolutely been up for that. 100% he would have done. As he shows in this movie, he has the acting range of a toffee, but he'd have been absolutely up for it. And probably would have done it for just a handful of toffees. Yeah, Werther's Originals. He's of the appropriate age. On the 6th of January, Sega opens up Sega World Sydney in Australia, presumably off the success of the one in London Trocadero. On January 9th, Jerry Maguire topped the UK box office. And on the same day, the notorious B.I.G. is shot dead while sitting in the passenger seat of a car after a post-Soul Train Awards party in Los Angeles, California. The day after that, The Simpsons was moved from BBC One to BBC Two, which is where Luke Owen really got into his let's tape The Simpsons every single day phase. Alternatively, The Simpsons in Alien Shop. Like a rumba. 
foolish humans. Oh, yes, Kolos. Earth is now ripe for the plucking. <laughs> at Home with the Simpsons, every Monday and Friday at 6 on BBC Two. Day, Paul McCartney was knighted by Elizabeth II, and then on the 15th, the Spice Girls topped the chance with a double A side of Mama and Who Do You Think You Are, which is the first time a female act has had four consecutive number ones. That will not be the last time the Spice Girls come up in this podcast. Nor royalty. <laughs> Absolutely. On the 19th, the Reunited Monkeys performed two sold out concerts at Wembley Arena in London, and then on the 23rd of January, the re-release with new added bonus scenes and effects of Star Wars tops the UK box office. For an entire generation, people have experienced Star Wars the only way it's been possible, on the TV screen. But if you've only seen it this way, you haven't seen it at all. For its 20th anniversary, the adventure of a lifetime returns to the big screen in a way you've never seen before. There'll be no one to stop us this time. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. With newly enhanced visual effects. They're coming in too fast! THX and digital sound. And a few new surprises. Hanabuki Bargonianda. Ah, yes, the true kind of noticeable beginning of George Lucas fucking around and finding out with his own IP. Well, here's the thing, Ash. It wasn't the movie he wanted to make in 1977. He didn't have the technology back then to make the movie as good as it could have been. So he had to go in and, you know, put back in that Jabba scene and add in some extra tauntauns in the background of another shot. And when you think about it, those extra tauntauns in the back of that shot really do emphasize the Luxor droids part of Star Wars. Oh, but what if I tinker with it a little bit more? Oh, if I tinker with it, I get to re-release it again. But what if I add another no into this scene? McClunky. Yeah, all these sorts of weird bits and pieces. McClunky is a really bizarre one. Uh, you know, hand shooting first and all this sort of stuff. It is a lot of Lucas messing around with the movie. But as a Star Wars fan, particularly in 1997, like, I mean, throughout the 90s, I was, I was so huge into it because my brother had got the VHSs of the, the original trilogy. We were really like at a fever pitch of Star Wars fandom. I believe this is also the same year of Tazos getting their Star Wars collection in through the uh, through Walker's Crisps and stuff. So it was Star Wars everywhere. And going to the pictures to see these on the big screen, which obviously I wouldn't have been able to do previously, was awesome. I get to do it the following month as well in February because uh, Empire and Jedi also get released. So this is a really pivotal point of my Star Wars fandom. I would argue this is probably peak Star Wars fandom for me up until 99 with the release of Episode 1. And then it just starts to slightly wane with 2 and 3. And then picks right back up again with The Force Awakens. And then it's a proper nemesis at Alton Towers roller coaster <laughs> of up and down. Some really good ones, there's some really shit ones, and then the TV series, there's some really good ones, some really shit ones. See, the whole argument of it's not the film I wanted to make in 1977 is entirely true, but if he'd fixed that for these re-releases, 
It wouldn't have been called Star Wars. It would have been called Flash Gordon. It, well, exactly. I don't mind the, the first re-releases. Obviously, I'm being glib. And I think now we're sort of like looking at it through with the benefits of, you know, 2023 eyesight where we could be like, oh, and then he did far too many. But at the time, these felt like great additions to it. That like, you know, he really rebuilt Cloud City in um, in Empire Strikes Back. And when you go into that scene when you go into Moss Eisley and there's like extra little bits and bobs I think Lucas is right it does make Moss Eisley feel like this more complete world they've dated awfully like you know but they, I think it does really work the Jabba scene blew my mind I remember the the VHS and the special feature about that Jabba sequence and how Han Solo walks around Jabba when it was a, a human actor and then they changed it when it got to Jedi to him being the slug creature. But now because he walks behind him, he has to like step up and step over him. And then going through the process of making that done and me being like, this is like magic. This is movie magic. You look at it now and it looks like absolute dog shit. But at the time, it was mind blowing. The, the way, the amount that special effects had grown in a very short space of time. If that character had been called anything other than Jabba. They could have still made it a hut. They could have made it one of Jabba's nephews and nieces or relatives. I mean, you know, they do procreate because we've seen them turn up in other movies and TV shows. They could have got away with the fact that Jabba the Hutt in A New Hope looks bugger all like Jabba the Hutt less than two years later in movie timeline. Like, Jabba had a really rough couple of years. Like, awful. we're talking going from 56 Elvis to half a step from the toilet seat Elvis in a much shorter space of time. And really, let's be honest, the design of Jabber is way better in Jedi than it was when he was just a lad with a fur coat. Absolutely. I mean, George Lucas claiming this, that and the other is all part of the plan. If it was all part of the plan, you wouldn't have had Fire Tuck in A New Hope. <laughs> George Lucas's whole it was all part of the plan nonsense is one of my favourite things within film history because... It wasn't, though, was it, George? Behave yourself. But I will say, thankfully, we are at a point where, at some point, I'm sure, Disney will release the original cuts, like, with as little offence as possible. It probably won't be until after Lucas dies, but them's the breaks. However, until that point, we've gone past the despecialised editions, and now you have hand-restored 4K prints with like six channel discrete surround sound like fan-made restorations where they found 35 mil prints and are restoring them one frame at a time weirdly you can get really good restored versions of a new hope and jedi but empire because the print was in so much worse condition is just taking a lot lot longer so you can watch original release of star wars never mind a new hope it's just star wars then despecialized empire strikes back and then original release Return of the Jedi. I did that when we got our 4K TV downstairs, watched the original Star Wars as it was originally made. And it genuinely kind of restored some of my love for Star Wars. Because at that point, I was a bit burnt out other than Mandalorian. And yeah, I just went, oh, that was really good. That was just really, really good. Star Wars is a lot like wrestling for me in that I absolutely love it, but the fandom makes me not want to like it. And I often get burnt out on Star Wars a lot, but there are times when I just watch the original trilogy, I just get transported back to that childhood wonder. And I, I think sometimes Star Wars misses some of that. Some of the more modern stuff, I think, misses that kind of like childhood wonder that, that Luke has brought to it. But 
the other key point to this is that like 1997 is a very pivotal point in the in the series history. We get these three re-releases, 20 years since the original, brand new sets of toys as well. In fact, they make an appearance in Games Master Series 7. But it's also when the conversation start and the cogs start to turn that George Lucas wants to do another Star Wars movie. And we're going to go back in time and show the journey of Anakin Skywalker. And this is what we lead towards with the release of episode one in a couple of years' time. We're not going to get to the prequel trilogy. And the question mark is still in the air about what we do post Games Master. I would love to talk about prequel trilogy with you, but only if we could find a way to do it that is not just rehashing what everyone else has said about the prequel trilogy. Absolutely, because a lot has been said about that prequel trilogy. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we go full Series 3, it's not as bad as everyone says, because, holy dickens, a lot of it is as bad as everyone said. In some cases, it's worse than I remember. Maybe the way we could approach it is we go into those movies looking for the good in them. Do you know what? I I don't hate that as as an idea, because... And, you know, I, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I know you are a, of a similar vein to me when it comes to this. I really want to rewatch the Star Wars trilogy, but every time I sit down to do it, I'm like, well, really, I should start with episode one so I can get the full story of things. And I get halfway through episode two, and I'm like, oh, I can't go any further. I can't get through this movie. And then I never get to bloody four, five, and six. I really should just start with four. It's been a while since I've sat down and watch the movie to be like, let's find, let's try and take me back to 1999 when I came out of that cinema. What, here is what I want to find, Ash. I'm trying to find the Luke that came out of episode one in 1999, telling myself, no, that was a good movie. And telling my brother, no, that was a good movie. And that that little glimmer of trying to convince myself that it was a good movie and trying to think, trying to find those positive moments in there. That's the one I need to that's what I need to tap into. Maybe maybe we need to find a way to sit and go through this journey together. Maybe that's some extra value added C down the line. Well, speaking of good C, on the same day the Star Wars topped the box office, we got the debut of Midsummer Murders. Every time I go to any Midsummer village, it's always the same thing. Blackmail, sexual deviancy, suicide and murder. How could you possibly expect me to go and live in one of them? Who are you? I'm Detective Chief Inspector Barnaby. Why do I get the feeling that everyone is lying to me? Everyone. They always lie to you, Tom. And you always know. That's why you're so good at your job. It's just in here, sir. Oh, where the blood and the police photographers are. A TV show that I fucking loves. That original, like, few series of stuff, I was obsessed with Midsummer Murders. With the Nettles. With yes. John Nettles. Oh, yeah. Lovely. So, so good. And five days after the debut of Midsummer Murders, we got the final episode of Play Days. Sad little ends. Well, you know, the Y bird went to Midsummer and it was all downhill from there. <laughs> and the day after that, we had a new game at the top of the video game charts with Micro Machines V3. Yes, the third. I believe. Yeah, it's it's the third. In the same way that Street Fighter 3 is the third one. Exactly. But this is a game that would come out in Europe at this time and would then not appear in America until sometime towards the end of the year, November or so. Really quite a delay because they were just like, well, Micro Machines is big in the UK, but it's dead property over here. But then the Nintendo 64 wouldn't get their version of this, which would actually be rebranded to Micro Machines 64 Turbo. 
until 1999. Micro Machines was well dead by... Th- oh, actually, do you know what? I'll tell you that back. Star Wars was breathing life into the Micro Machines franchise, funnily enough. Yeah, amazingly, that merchandising juggernaut was just bringing back all the dead properties. But what got me is the Nintendo 64 version had eight players. Wow. Is that one of those ones where you share half a controller each? Exactly. The Mega Drive one did that as well. (laughs) One person has the D-pad, the other person has the C buttons. Yes. Which works really, really well. Although I'm a little disappointed they didn't absolutely just go for broke and have a third person on the analog and the Z trigger. Because then you could have had D-pad and L, C-pad and R, and analog stick and trigger, and then that would be 12. Well, do you know what? There are people out there way smarter than I that have done a lot of magical things with that N64 controller. I want to now see someone get into the source code of Micro Machine 64 Turbo and put that in there, which will then work. So we'll then do it as a challenge on a future UCP live events. That would be absolutely amazing. Although even just in the eight player mode, that could be hilarious at a future UCP live event just to see grown ass adults trying to share a Nintendo 64 controller because God knows for kids it would be difficult enough. But for adults, whoo. I'll be honest, I'm well in for that idea. We'll, We'll mark that one down in the yes pile. Now, critical response to this game was mixed. It was quite a Marmite game, actually. Some people were well into it because they knew that the pure joy of Micro Machines lay in the multiplayer aspect. Others, presumably people that didn't enjoy having friends around to play games, hated it. However, it was reviewed in our March issue of Games Master magazine. Now, I'm not going to do a strike at Lukey right now because there is a review coming up later that made me cackle when I saw it, so we're going to save it for that one. But two-page review of the PlayStation version reviewed by James Ashton. Graphics. Superb effects on the cars and details on the tracks. Fantastic depth of field on the 3D stuff. 93%. Mm -hmm. Sound. Each vehicle has its own distinctive sound. The rinky-dink music will annoy mind. Only 85. Yeah, I don't remember the soundtrack to Micro Machines V3, but that sounds about right. Gameplay, as brilliant as ever, fast, smooth and still the best multiplayer racing game of all time, 91%. Lifespan. There's so much here, you'll only be bored when you've got no one else to play with. Now we're seeing what the what the folly of the other reviewers there. 93. Overall, damn it all to hell, we'll say it. This is the best multiplayer game on the PlayStation. Argue if you dare. 91%. That's not a bad little score, that. And the PlayStation 1 was the one I did play. My brother went to university in 1997? Yeah, I think my brother went to university in 1997. And one of his flatmates had this. And when I went to, we went to drop him off. So it would have been the summer of this year. I He had this on the PlayStation and he lent me his copy of Micro Machines V3. I remember it being okay. I don't remember having a massive amount, not as much love for uh, for the as I had for the original Mega Drive ones, uh, or original NES ones, I suppose you want to be pedantic, but for me it's the original Mega Drive ones. But I don't remember it being a bad game, just I, I think I preferred the Mega Drive ones. But it's lovely to see it got a really good review in context. Yeah, and I mean, that was the PlayStation version, as we mentioned. The N64 version comes 
much later. There were also releases for Windows and the Game Boy Color, but Luke, guess what? What's that? A Sega Saturn version was demonstrated at the 1996 E3 Expo, at which time Codemasters said they were going to release it at the same time as the PlayStation version. However, in mid-1997, sometime after the PlayStation version had been released, they went, yeah, we've cancelled it for reasons. Those reasons being no one owns Assassin anymore. Reasons, Luke. Justified reasons. Well, the day after Micro Machines V3 topped the video game charts, a very big moment, a very big, big moment here of UK TV, the launch of Channel 5. Welcome. It's six o'clock on Sunday, March the 30th, and this is 5. This is something we're going to skirt around because Patreons will find out why in a month or so as to why we're skirting around it now. But Spice Girls performance because, you know, biggest thing since sliced bread. That's a great coup for Channel 5 to get the biggest, not even just the biggest band in the UK, the biggest band on the planet to open up and be part of the opening ceremony of Channel 5, if you will. Performing, you know, a brand new track that's not really, it's not released on anything as far as I'm aware. It was a cover, but it's, you know, a great coup for them. Also, potentially a great coup, they got Family Affairs. They got the Jack Doherty Show. The Late Show with David Letterman, which I think was the first time that was being aired in the UK, certainly on terrestrial television. Absolutely, yeah, that's another great get. And the next day, they had an interview with then-Labour leader, Mr Tony Blair. Future Prime Minister of the UK. Like, you know, they land a massive, huge interview just one day later, I, I think Channel 5 came out the blocks running. Uh, I will save a lot of this for, you know, that potential mysterious episode that might come up down the line for our Patreon backers. But I was there day one for Channel 5 because we could, we got it. We were able to get it in our house. I could just about get it upstairs in my bedroom. But downstairs, we got a crystal clear picture for Channel 5. The following day, Sky One aired a very iconic episode of The Simpsons, The Springfield Files, its crossover with also popular show The X-Files. While on ITV, we got the debut of Cold Feet. Get those steel drums going. While the following day saw the debut of Teletubbies. These Teletubbies say hello. These Teletubbies say This Teletubby loves Teletubbies. And these Teletubbies love to dance. Dinky Winky, Pinky Winky, Dipsy, They all come to play with you every weekday morning on Children's BBC Two. And how bonkers is it that here we are, 26 years later, and they're coming back? The bastards are back. That which cannot be killed just comes back stronger, and that includes Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Lala, Poe, Nunu, and a whole new kid as the sun. 
It was a huge, huge show. So 1997, I am uh, just about to go into big school and... I remember going into big school and there were kids in my year that would watch Teletubbies ironically, thinking like, it's a really funny show, actually. Like, it's it's so mad because, you know, it's, a t- it's time for babies, right? But I'm 12 years old, heading up towards 13. But there genuinely were kids in the popular kids, uh, the bigger boys, who thought it was hilariously funny and would watch it and would come in and talk about how stupid and how like rubbish the show is but genuinely did think it was like a, a, a popular show to watch. And it's mad how huge this little show became. And like the controversy around it as well. Do you remember the controversy when people started to write, one of them's gay? Like, can you believe they put a gay one on TV? Could you imagine TV having gay people on it? Certainly not in my lifetime. And then the controversy of it's teaching kids bad speech habits. And there was just loads of like thought pieces from idiots, basically looking to get some, you know, some cheap exposure that were writing mad pieces about a show for babies. Yeah. And it was amazing how you have people of the same generation going, this is rotting our kids' minds with its nonsense speech. And of the same age, people defending it going, but Bill and Ben, the flower pot men. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's, the other thing as well, like, you know, I've I've, cur- I've got a kid now and there's a show that my kid loves called Twirly Woos. And it's just about these four little, like, I don't know what you would call them. They're, what they're called the Twirly Woos. There's Great Big Boo and Toodaloo, Chickadee and Chick. Those are the four. And there's Peekaboo, this little bird thing. And it's a show that when we were watching it, my wife just said, oh, you can tell that this is made to go into international markets, can't you? And I said, yeah, because there's no writing anywhere. And it's just lots of like, lots of silence and then just occasional bits of wording. That's also the genius of Teletubbies. It was very easily transported into foreign markets. I mean, when you had the whole bit where the, you know, whatever the kids were doing came up on the, the television screens, easily replaced for different markets, easily just chroma key in, locally produced content for whatever damn market we want. It's a brilliant piece. And it, it's not the last time we get to discuss it either, because it gets a UK number one. It's nearly the Christmas number one. Yep. Yep, it is. <laughs> uh, when we were drawing up this document as well that we're referencing here where we you know got all the dates and stuff you pointed out this next one as can you believe this actually happened channel 5 was the subject of a ratings war there was a point in time when channel 5 was actually in competition with channel 4 and itv and the beeb but in terms of people tuning in for things although i do realize i actually watch quite a lot of channel 5 now but specifically 5 usa and specifically 5 usa on a sunday when it's wall to wall colombo but this was the other channels counter-programming the big things that Channel 5 might have up. So Channel 5 becomes the subject of a ratings war with all major channels adopting aggressive scheduling to retain viewers, as well as Lord of the Dance, BBC airs two episodes of EastEnders and The Thrill and Malice, while ITV screens five movies, including Ace Ventura, Pet Detective and Robocop 2. Channel 4 has Goodbye Girl and Break Heart Pass. Guess who saw Robocop 2 for the first time at this time? Well, I was going to say, I think that copy of Ace Ventura Pet Detective is the one I had on VHS for all those years later. And it must have been because it's the, it's the TV edit version that doesn't have the sex scene in it. I mean, Robocop 2 would have also been quite sanitised, even in its post-Watershed role. I don't think I saw the mostly uncut Robocop 2 for another couple of years. But even so, it was still a really cool movie to see at the time. So 
Thanks, Channel 5, for making the other broadcasters slightly nervous. Ash, before we do leave the month of March, I believe there's some other news to take from the Games Master magazine. There is, because here we are in the immediate aftermath of the launch of the Nintendo 64. Mario 64 is top of the game charts, and it's official, Nintendo have sold out. Specifically, they've sold out of 20,000 machines in under five hours. That is mad impressive. Yeah, the article starts, the queues were predictable and so was the sellout from as early as 7am. <laughs> How quaint, 7am. People were queuing outside shops all over the country in a desperate bid to get their hands on one of the few Nintendo 64s that hadn't been pre-ordered. The first shipment of 20,000 machines went on the shelves and back off almost as quickly. By lunchtime, everyone was putting up the sold out signs. The second shipment is expected to perform much the same. Not everyone was as happy as the 20,000 lucky ones who actually started to play Mario 64 on Saturday afternoon. Retailers, distributors, the games, and even the Games Master Office received calls complaining about the lack of machines. Some people even went and bought PlayStations and Saturns in utter disgust. Oh, those poor Saturn owners. Hey, I (laughs) resemble that remark. But also, let's be honest, it was mainly PlayStations that were bought. If you went to a shop and they'd sold all their N64s and all their PlayStations... I mean, God, could you imagine if they'd sold out of all the Saturns as well? <laughs> hey, Timmy, guess what? Is it a Nintendo 64? Close. You like cats, don't you? It's just as good, I promise. And look at all the buttons on this controller. And hey, it's going to help you with your school. It's got a Shakespeare play with it called Tempest. Look, where did you learn to fly? <laughs> uh, although the games, despite getting nasty phone calls, were quite chuffed. Even we were taken by surprise how fast these machines sold out. They lied. That last bit was my editorial edition. The retailers thought that they might just have enough to make it to the middle of the following week. That wasn't so. We exceeded our own expectations, even with our limited stock. We're getting regular deliveries, though, so the situation should be remedied soon. We're even bringing in some machines over by air to try and speed the process up. It's going to cost us a fortune to do it, but we feel we have to. Sure, they're not going to make money on it at all. Oh, no. We are intending to bring 130,000 machines in in the first three months. That's 40,000 more than we originally intended to. Sega came through with this quote. It wasn't really a launch. It was more of a trickle. It was almost laughable. Their price is double what most people around the world are paying for an N64 and triple what they're paying in Japan. Nintendo always liked to make a big scene about selling out, but with 20,000 machines, they couldn't fail. They always limit their supplies to create artificial demand. We're not impressed. Look, some of that is not exactly incorrect. Some of it's very true. Some of it is bang on the banana. However, you're also the fucking losers of this war, so you don't come out looking cool with with quotes like that. Games Master Magazine does the due diligence and says, okay, what do you actually pay based on exchange rates? Luke, do you want to guess what the N64 equivalent was in Japan? Ooh, I couldn't even begin to imagine 85 pounds was it bloody hell america was 150 pounds germany was 130 and that's all in comparison to our price of 250 pounds crivens games master approached the games about this and asked them about it and they blamed the need for rf modulators and that uk retailers require a higher profit margin than almost anywhere else They require up to 25%, where elsewhere in the world, they want an average of 10%. 
See, I mean, that is also really interesting from a business perspective, but I actually just got madly nostalgic for the, the mention of RF. This was the last Nintendo console, I think, to ship with an RF connector because yeah. by the time we get to the GameCube, it's composite and SCART. Yeah, I suppose I'm pretty sure it was SCART. My GameCube was SCART, I'm pretty sure it was. On the other page, Sony aren't taking this lying down. As we get it announced, the PlayStation price is being slashed. And to cut to the short of it, the PlayStation launched September 95, £299. May 96, £199. And here we are in March 1997. They're dropping to £129. And it's you know probably why I get mine the following year, because that price will have dropped even further. But that is quite a steal. Really, when you think about it, you've got two years worth of uh, games at that point, plus Final Fantasy VII is you know coming down the line that is a hell of a price point and if you're one of those parents that's gone into a a game station or what have you or a virgin mega store to go and buy little timmy a nintendo 64 and you find out that well that was 300 quid but i can get this one for 130 and it's got way more games let's get him that there's another quote from sega they've got a very chatty kathy down at sega and they said Seeing as most PlayStations in the shops are sold in bundles, the Saturn is still better value for money. We already had a bundle in the pipeline because we were expecting them to pull a trick like this. That's a bit like going, and my cousin's uncle has got the Mega Drive 3, which runs off of, like, ice cubes. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it sounds a little bitter in terms of press quotes. Moving into the month of April, and on the 5th, the Chemical Brothers topped the UK charts with Block Rockin' Beat, while Theme Hospital topped the video game charts. A couple of days later, on the 7th, Peter Baldwin makes his final appearance as the character Derek Wilton in Coronation Street, having appeared on and off since 1976. A day later, the American-slash-Canadian children's animated series Arthur makes its UK debut on BBC One, and on the 12th, R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly tops the UK charts. We won't go further into that because we're going to spend a bit more time on the same day topping the video game charts. Command and Conquer Red Alert. times now. Ground forces have been neutralized. Immediately at General! strategy game for your PC. Oh, I mean, we've talked muchly, 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 muchly about our love for Command and Conquer. And here we are with the game that to me still defines the series. Because of course, 1995, you had the original CNC, Command and Conquer. That itself came off the back of June 2. And then we get to the sequel to Command and Conquer, which is not actually a sequel, it's a prequel because the next game in the series was actually a step backwards because it explored how we got to the conflict of the first game. It centred around a clash between the Allied forces and the Soviet Union and kind of cemented this concept of an alternative future. So in Red Alert, the Soviet Union rose to power much sooner under Stalin. They took over China, India and Eastern Europe. World War II still happened, but with the Allied forces banding together against Russia led by Stalin and it created this alternative timeline that then took us forward in the series eventually leading 
to professional wrestlers fighting bears and Tim Curry saying the word space. But my main, the massive memory I've got of this game is the LAN, because it wasn't long after this time that I started hanging out and working at an internet cafe, and we had lock-in parties after 10pm, and we played a lot of Quake, and we played a lot of Command & Conquer Red Alert. And all the computers had speakers, and you just heard this chorus of swearing whenever you heard a Tanya from somewhere else in the building. This game, I, I mean, like this year in particular, uh, we'll, I could talk about this a bit more when we get into episode one of series seven, is what I think of when I think of my era of PC gaming. Chat Manager 96, 97. Command & Conquer Red Alert, Blade Runner, and Tomb Raider 2. Blade Runner in particular because our PC could not really... It could run the game, but not the cut sequences particularly well. But it really could run CNC Red Alert. And me and my brother played a lot of this game. Oh, we never played it LAN or anything like that. But we played all of the seeing Like, this, you know, solo missions and stuff. I remember there's a mission when you're playing as the Soviet Union where you've actually just got to get a group of guys to a finish line. So you've got like five guys and a couple of dogs. So you're not building bases or anything like that. You're not building anything. You've literally just got to get these guys across enemy lines. And I did that with one singular dog left because I was gunned down by the allies. And I just had my dog being like, run dog, run, as I was being chased down. And I've got such a vivid memory of completing that mission with just that solo dog. I don't remember any specific individual missions, I think, with Red Alert. I just remember the feel, the vibe, the soundtrack, the Tanya laugh and all those things. And it shocked me when I was looking this up to find out that it didn't actually sell as well as the original. Did it not? It did great numbers. It did over $16 million US, but it didn't sell quite as many as the original. If true, that blows my mind. I remember way more people playing Red Alert than playing the original. Absolutely. I would have thought it would have eclipsed CNC numbers because that's everyone I remember was playing Red Alert. But whether it did the business of the first or not, it led to expansions, it led to sequels, eventually, of course, including Red Alert 3, which gave us... Space! It's still so fondly remembered now. They never quite like recaptured that essence and apart from that anniversary kind of like remaster most attempts to bring command and conquer back have been biffish microtransaction yeah. hell yeah which is a real shame and you know let's not forget the true beauty of command and conquer red Alert, whether it be that laugh or that the game kicks off with a time-travelling Albert Einstein murdering Hitler. I mean, that's what happened. Historically, that's what's in the books, Luke. I did way better at Command & Conquer Red Alert than I did my history GCSE. And if I'd have just taken everything I learned from Red Alert, I probably would have done better at school. And actually, a little bit like the original. That soundtrack, mate. Such, such good composition.
In a slight different departure from what we just talked about there, The Empire Strikes Back was top of the UK box office, which I think we've already sort of discussed a little bit, although I had a lot of love for the uh, the redo of Empire. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I thought the, the bit in Cloud City was quite spectacular. They, they screwed around less with Empire. Mm. Yeah, it's got the least amount of changes to it. A New Hope annoys me. When we get to Jedi... It actively offends me. I want my Yub Nub song. That's the the big crime of, of Return of the Jedi. I, you're right with A New Hope as well. Like when South Park did their parody episode of the re-releases where Matt and Trey announced that they're going to re-release the original episode of South Park because it it doesn't look like the way they wanted it to because they didn't have the technology to do it. All of the references are to uh, to A New Hope more than the other two. But in an even further change in departure, on the 14th, June Brown returns to EastEnders as Doc Cotton after a four-year break. Oh, sorry I wasn't looking last game. Well, we told me the body were absent from the Lord. You were? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Do we? Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Yeah, she left the square in 1993, her son was in jail, and she basically went off. In the closest you kind of get in EastEnders to a happy ending, uh, she left to look after, or help look after, her nine-year-old grandson that she only just found out about, and they, they moved to Gravesend. And that's where Doc Cotton lived until 1997, when she returned after Nigel. You remember Nigel with the ties and the wacky shirts. We talked about him in that Christmas episode. But he tracked her down. She revealed that Nick had been arrested for drug possession. Her grandson and his mum had moved away. And so she returned to Albert Square uh, after being held hostage by a convict friend of her son's. But generally speaking, she returned to Albert Square where she went on to live a peaceful life for the rest of her time. Only kidding. Only kidding. <laughs> her son turned up, claimed to have AIDS as part of a scam. She then helped euthanize her best friend and felt so guilty she started shoplifting to get arrested because she felt she should go to jail. She did go to jail and she spent 14 days there for shoplifting. Although in her mind, that 14 days was because she helped euthanize her friend Ethel. You remember Ethel? With little Willie. I do remember I thought she didn't want to go to that Christmas party, but she had a nice time in the end. Yeah, basically, she helped euthanize Ethel and 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 then just went on this long kind of like campaign to get put away for murder, literally going to the police and confessing to murder. And the police were like, you're bonkers. We're not <laughs> arresting you. Go away. What a mad little world EastEnders is. Oh, God, it's absolutely terrible. I mean, don't get me wrong, I will happily cover another Christmas episode with you at some point in isolation. But I do just want to point out that something I hadn't realised until I was trawling through the various information on where Doc Cotton was at this point is that June Brown is the only person to carry an episode of EastEnders single-handedly. She did an entire episode as a monologue recording a tape for her husband who was in hospital following a heart attack or a stroke or something. She got like a a BAFTA nomination or whatever it was, you know, one of those awards that's kind of like a real award, but not quite. One of those TV awards. Yeah, Yeah. she got nominated for one of those. She might have even won it. But I also just thought that must have been a weird point when EastEnders were going, let's experiment a little. 
because the thought of doing a half an hour monologue, that's ballsy. On the 26th, Wave Race 64 tops the video game charts and dozens of people across the country are disappointed it's not four players. While on the 27th, it's a return to the top of the box office for Return of the Jedi. Ash, tell me why the exclusion of the Nub Nub song winds you up. Because it's a banging piece of music. <laughs> it's so good, right? It is. I did not know it was not in the movie when I went to go and see it. So I went to the pictures waiting for that song to come because it is a banger. I mean, like, what is this? Where is it? What's this fucking, you know, street panpipe peddling <laughs> CD bullshit? <laughs> rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Of all the changes to make fun of in these original 1997 re-releases, this is the most egregious of them. Honestly, talking about stuff like this makes me think, you know what, we might not have such a hard time looking for a positive in the prequel trilogy <laughs> because when he was fucking around with the originals, he did shit like this. Exactly. He's always been bad. We just didn't know it yet. Yeah, it's long-term storytelling. <laughs> he always was evil. We just didn't know. Well, Ash, before we leave this month behind us, what's going on in Games Master magazine? Well, look, we've got some exclusive news about the PlayStation and the Saturn 2. What? On the PlayStation side of things, unofficially called the Highlander Project, Sony's new machine is in the development pipeline, but according to Sony, will not reach the bright lights of the marketplace until 1999 at the earliest. It's an odd name for a project, because surely there can only be one. Maybe that was some real egotistical stuff on Sony's part, which is like... <laughs> Mate, we are literally going to decapitate every other console on the market. And they kind of did. I was going to say, there can only be one, and it's us. So here we are, 1997. Let's go through the rumours and see how close they got. Oh, I like this a lot. Our men, wearing the dodgy Max with the high-tech listening devices, report that according to the latest rumours, the 64-bit machine is set to include around 8 megabytes of RAM, bilinear filtering, anti-aliasing and trilinear MIP mapping, which in English means really good graphics that look smoother and move like steaming piglets. I've never seen a steaming piglet. I will assume it moves pretty good. Ben, I mean, I, I, I'm no technical expert, but the PlayStation 2 did look very nice. Also, mine had the faint smell of ham, so mm. maybe. Reputedly, the machine will be able to shift up to 800,000 textured polygons per second, which is particularly impressive when you consider the current PlayStation is no slouch with its top limit of 120,000. The CD drive will probably be a six-speed disc spinner compared to the PlayStation's double-speed drive, although the new DVD format is unlikely to be supported, as was once hoped. This blows my mind that here we are in April of 1997 and they're talking about DVDs. Like, DVD doesn't enter my life until years and years later. Uh, but... I love that. But yeah, that's great, isn't it? Because quite famously, it does come with a shockingly terrible DVD drive. And it was my first DVD player. Another whisper currently surrounding the follow-up to the PlayStation is that the prototype is being developed by former members of UK firm Argonaut. You may remember that these were the people responsible for the Super FX chip that powered the SNES hits like Star Fox and Stunt Race FX. They've switched sides. Oh, there's a news article coming in a couple of months' time that really does speak to that and maybe where this rumour came from. These details have yet to be confirmed by a tight-lipped Sony, 
PlayStation designer and hardware big cheese Ken Kutaragi said the company isn't going to make the mistake of other manufacturers and promise the release of a new improved version of the PlayStation. PlayStation 2 is only a rumour and not a fact. However, in a press release given to European PlayStation dealers, he went on to add, As an engineer, I have all sorts of ideas and dreams for how PlayStation 2 should take place. He's just not going to tell us yet. One thing's for certain, with PlayStation sales booming and a release date tentatively set for 1999 at the earliest, there's no need to start saving yet. Yeah, I was going to say, it's still a little ways off yet. But that's really interesting that here we are, April of 1997, and there are rumours of the PS2 already. And they weren't too far out on the release date because Japan, March 2000. I was going to say it's 2000 the PlayStation 2 comes out, isn't it? Yeah, it was March 2000. It came out in Japan. It didn't come out over here in the UK until the 24th of November 2000. They actually hit all three territories in less than a year. March for Japan, October for North America and November for Europe. Australia following only a week later. So they, they hit all the major territories. They did announce it in 1999, however. I think I get mine 2001. Definitely wasn't like, you know, release. I think it's 2001 I get mine. I get mine 2002 and I got it with, I think, one of my first paychecks from the job that would lead me on my career path. I remember when I got mine and I remember fairly certain I got a Smackdown game with it. Well, I, that's why I was just went to check my dates there. I definitely got mine 2001 because I bought Smackdown Just Bring It on release and that came out late 2001. Meanwhile, the Saturn successor, known as Project Black Belt. Oh, now that is cool. Yeah, They're going to karate that... chop the competition. Now, Project Black Belt was a console Sega developed, but if I remember correctly, it wasn't the Dreamcast, but it was going to be the successor to the Saturn. And then you had the actual Dreamcast that came after it. And I think if you go around and look on Google for Sega Project Black Belt, you will find photos of what purported to be a test kit, dev, kind of sculpt, whatever you want to call it, Project Black Belt, which looks remarkably similar to a Dreamcast. If anything, it's a little harder edged. It's got a few more sharp corners, a few more, a few more janky bits. I mean, it looks like a cross between the Saturn and the Dreamcast. You can see its heritage and its future in one. But they go on to say here that Although Sega are denying it, details of the machine have been flying around on the internet at a right royal rate. I mean, it's the internet, Luke. It's got to be true. The latest news-filled bombshell to be dropped suggests that the console could see Sega team up with Microsoft, who are reputed to be providing their new arcade operating system for the machine. Furthering the PC link, an early frontrunner to handle the graphics is the powerful 3DFX Voodoo board that pushes polygons around at a phenomenal rate on PCs. Also, the CPU is expected to be a power PC of some variety. Developers are apparently being told the Black Belt will have 60 megabytes of RAM and 2 to 8 megabytes for texture handling and audio. Rumored games under development include Virtua Fighter 3, a footy sim, and a basketball title. Those last two, you could just pick them out of a hat, and of course they're going to have a football sim and a basketball title. It's a console. They want to sell it in America. And Japan, to be fair, because both of those are very big there. I would wager, I'm not going to put money on, that rumour of Sega and Microsoft working together is from the SOA side of things, from the Sega of America side of things, because the story of the Saturn is Sega of America were approached by loads of people to kind of work with. They were approached by Silicon Graphics and they were approached by Sony to do work together 
and it was Sega of Japan that shut all of that down because they just wanted to do everything in-house, which is why we ended up with the Saturn the way that it is. So I wonder if this is another, everyone wanted to work with Sega, Microsoft approached them and Sega of America were really keen to do it. But the second they pitched it to Hayao Nakayama, he just said, no, we'll do the Dreamcast in-house or whatever, you know, Project Black Belt, we'll do that in-house. Most of the rest of the article for Sega's site is just denial, basically going, it's not happening. The Saturn's going to remain their priority for the next few years. Mm, I'm sure it is. However... This is where things get a little bit interesting because there was a competition to design the graphics chipset that would be used in the follow-up to the Saturn into what would eventually become the Dreamcast. The one that was eventually chosen was the Power VR 2. It was chosen over a 3DFX Voodoo-based chipset, which is exactly what they mentioned in this news article here. And of course, Microsoft were involved in the Dreamcast. Their logo is on the front of the console. I've got one over there. But Luke, are you ready to have your mind blown a little? I'm ready for it. The winning chipset, the Power VR chipset that was used in the Dreamcast had a code name, and that code name was Project Highlander. <laughs> Amazing. So, Games Master Magazine had some genuine, genuine scooping news here, but they attributed some of the Sega stuff to Sony, because what you actually have is you have both components of the follow-up to the Sega Saturn, to the Dreamcast, there you have a 3DFX chipset that's never used. You have a Power VR chipset that is used with the development title of Project Highlander. Amazing. Shit like that genuinely makes me happy. You can see how happy I am. <laughs> you can hear it, how happy you are. It's just bonkers. It's bonkers how there is so much bullshit in that news article. And I'm sure there are some people on the internet that probably know way more about the history that will actually send letters and emails. Genuinely, this time I welcome them. Send me the article. Send me where I can go to read more about this stuff. This is the rabbit hole that I like to fall down. I was going to point as well. I mean, this is not really for any audio listeners, but it's certainly for me and you on this video call. It's often quite distracting while you're reading magazines because both the March and April editions have got Star Wars adverts on them and they just say the word Luke on it. Yes, use the joypad, Luke. Well, you know, I have just got Channel 5 in my bedroom. We have one last stop to make in this, in this issue of the magazine and it's something I put out on Twitter earlier to see if I could get some feedback from people and also because it made me laugh. And it is on the letters page in a letter titled, Just Listen to Him. Dear Dominic Diamond, I would just like to say straight away that I am not gay. Hmm. Strange way to start a letter, I know, but read on and you should realise why I had to get that out of the way. Being the cool men that you are, I thought I'd try using some of your words and phrases to see if they were good for me or a pile of poo. I started off using pant. I like this word, but my friends gave me the impression that it sounded a bit cack when I said it. So then I started using type situation, which I have kept with to this day. Because I am now using one of your phrases, I am going to let you use my favourite word, which I'm known for saying, and is damn, damn cool. That word is a funky. The a said in a font style, is optional. It's to be used when you like something, instead of cool, nice, etc. You can use kinky if you really want, but please, only on special occasions, and that was from Oliver W. Owen, Home, Cornforth, 
Now, I'm going to assume you don't have a cousin or relative called Oliver. I don't believe I do. I've got, there are plenty of cousins abound, but I don't think Oliver is one of them. The reply from Games Master is, Oliver, mate, sort your life out. Harsh. <laughs> but harsh, but also kind of fair, because let's start at the back and work our way towards the front. I mean, I suppose that's turnabout fair play. You've stolen one of Dominic's gimmicks. You offer him one of yours. And going by Twitter, Dominic is now going to use it on his radio broadcasts going forward, only 25 years late. I hope Oliver hears it. When we are done recording, I'm going to be putting Dominic's radio show on. And Dominic, you're not going to hear this. I don't think you actually listen to the podcast, which is entirely fine. I wouldn't want to listen to people narrating my life either. I will be very disappointed if he doesn't use it at least once tonight. But let's go back to the beginning. There are many things I expect in a letter in Games Master magazine. Upset Saturn and Jaguar owners, befuddled 3DO owners, enforced proclamations of heterosexuality, which are followed by, if you read the rest of this letter, you will understand why. Luke, I've just read this letter to you completely unedited. Do you understand why he felt the need to insist that he was not gay? reading or rather say reading hearing that letter and you posted it up on twitter earlier being able to also kind of read along with it it reads like english is not their first language do you know what i mean it's just like i was trying these words out to see what would happen or like an alien wrote it and if that is the case the opening might make sense because like i hear this is how you humans start your interactions we start all our interactions by going i'm not gay <laughs> but it <laughs> was the 90s after all oh bloody lad culture or oliver is and he just doesn't know it yet denial denial is a thing i saw the letter because i was basically going through these magazines from front to back and i was always looking in the letters page genuinely i was hoping to find another jaguar or 3do letter because i just thought that would be funny as all hell. And I saw this letter and I saw that it was addressed to Dominic and I went, okay, this is going to be a gold mine. And then I read that first line and I just went, oh, oh no, what's going to be in the rest of this letter? <laughs> and then I read the rest of the letter. Then I went back and I read it again. And then I read it a third time. And then I made sure there wasn't some text hidden in the margin because genuinely, Oliver, sort your life out because you don't make any damn sense. Whether you're funky or kinky. Maybe he thinks kinky can only be used by people that aren't straight. I mean, I do use the word a lot, sometimes with an impression of the fonts, but also what? I wonder if that's what it is. You know, kinky nightclubs at that sort of caper, just to make Oliver think that is what the word means. Or that what that's what the word is associated with. How do you get soft skin when you shower? Choose a shower gel with the same pH as healthy skin to help maintain its natural moisture balance. Anything else? Choose a shower gel with added moisturizers for extra skin softness. Choose Johnson's pH 5.5 2-in-1 shower gel. Its added moisturizers leave your skin feeling healthy and so soft it's as if you'd used a body lotion. Try it and feel the difference. Tip of the red, red, bond with the dab and punk metal. I'm on the level. 
next wave. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You like scary movies? It's confusing, this voting business. Take Apple, seductive, glamorous. But behind closed doors, maggoty perverts caving family values for kicks. What of new black currents? Bursting with promises? Stinky wind! What sort of opponent are you? And then there's Lemon. At Orange, there is nothing sinister. The hit of real oranges is in your face. A stimulus to help you no! through another day. You know where you are with Orange! We're behind you! On the 3rd of May, Michael Jackson tops the UK charts with blood on the dance floor. And on the same day, Katrina and the Waves win the Eurovision Song Contest with Love Shine a Light. It's the first time the UK has won the competition since 1981. Now, I'm going to double check this here because I, I haven't looked into it. We haven't won it since? No, you are correct. We have not won it since. Although, arguably, we came a very, very respectable runner-up last year and... I am absolutely fine and happy that the Ukraine won. They entirely deserve to win. It is one of those rare times where I entirely endorse the political voting nature of the Eurovision Song Contest. And I also think Sam Ryder's song was an absolute banger. I'm actually quite taken with Sam Ryder. I saw him doing his New Year's Eve gig where he had Mel C on and all that stuff. And he was at the Foo Fighters tribute to Taylor Hawkins gig. And that was wonderful as well. I hope he has a career well beyond Eurovision. 
I think he's quite nice. That's on my list, actually, that Foo Fighters um, tribute concert, because it's on Paramount+. Plus. Oh, absolutely worth watching. Although, weirdly, there are a few tracks missing, which is somewhat bizarre. Yes, I did sign up for a seven-day trial so I could watch Top Gun Maverick over the weekend. But you also watched First Contact, didn't I you? Did. It was basically the first thing I did. <laughs> I kept saying to my wife, oh, we could watch some Star Trek movies. She was like, is there anything else on there? And I was like, yeah. There's there's the TV series as well. <laughs> also, best upscale currently available of the Avatar and Legend of Korra series as well, if there happens to be a podcast coming down the line about that. Mm. When she asked me if there was any other recommendation, I was like, look at the new Beavers and Butthead. She was not on board for Paramount Plus initially. Did she find something in the end? No, well, we watched Top Gun Maverick and she's not returned to the platform since. I don't think it'll uh, go beyond those seven days that we've got it for. <laughs> Unless, of course, I forget to cancel it. Anywho, also on the third, look who it is. The Spice Girls attend the Cannes Film Festival to announce their plans to hit the big screen with Spice World the movie. These girls are all over. And it's not the last time we're going to hear from them in this month. On the fourth, Jim Carrey returns to the top of the box office with Liar Liar, one of my favorite Jim Carrey comedies of the 90s. It's it's one of the Jim Carrey comedies that's not got anything that's dated horribly in it, as far as I remember. Certainly compared to, say, oh, I don't know, Ace Ventura definitely aged better. Yeah. Plus, it's got Jennifer Tilly in it, and you can't go wrong with a movie with Jennifer Tilly in it. We've got a triple bill of action here on the 10th of May as... X-Wing versus TIE Fighter tops the video game charts. Gary Barlow tops the UK box office with Love Won't Wait. And we got the debut of crime mystery series Jonathan Creek on BBC One. It was the ultimate crime. She did it. She went back to that house and shot her old man in cold blood. With a perfect alibi. I haven't set foot outside this room since I arrived. But when a pushy crime writer teams up with a master of illusion... I love it! Anything is possible. Clear your mind of all preconceptions. This is more calculated and evil than we imagined. Murder, mystery, and Martin the Jealous Husband. Welcome to the world of Jonathan Creek. Saturday at ten past eight on BBC One. I loved Jonathan Creek. Still do, in fact, because I've, I've got them on DVD, which I've, I've since donated to the in-laws. But I watched the heckins out of Jonathan Creek. Me and my friend were obsessed with this show. It was a great show. It still is a great show. Also, beautiful use of Dance Macabre, slightly adapted as the theme music. I was a big Jonathan Creek fan, though, and I, I, I know some people sort of make fun of it because it's got, like, incredibly wacky reveals you know bear in mind this is debuted shortly after midsummer murders on itv which is much more of a straight down the line murder mystery show it's a police procedural really absolutely yeah whereas jonathan creek is like this weird and wacky thing there are some visuals from that show though that really like stick in my mind that will never really leave me things like um a guy was murdered and his body was thrown down some set of stairs. And then when they opened the door, it had crawled up the stairs. And it turns out that there was a flood in the basement and it had risen the body up the stairs and then the water had dissipated. And there was at least one with a killer monkey in it, I think. I mean, of course, they're improbable. The dude's a magician for a living. Well, a magician, an inventor, a, yeah. a trick maker, a, a gimmick man, a whatever you will. But that's the thing is there were so few people, even if they could work out who killed who, the how was always beyond people. And anyone that went, oh, I knew it was going to be that, 
You're a liar. Absolute <laughs> liar. That one where the guy bricked himself into a brand new wall. None of you saw that coming. Of course you didn't. Uh, just before we quickly move on, just want to say X-Wing versus TIE Fighter was reviewed in the magazine. Uh, 92, 94, 93, 93, an overall of 93%. Crikey, that Star Wars is all over the place at the moment, isn't it? And it is doing numbers. And to be fair, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, I mean, if you think it was released in the same time frame as Shadows of the Empire, and also we're not too far away from uh, Dark Forces 2, Jedi Knight. Yeah, and you know, the movies being out in cinemas, brand new toys, the um, the Tazos and things like that. It's a good time to release a brand new Star Wars game. And thankfully, it's also a really good one as well. On the 11th, we have the Spice Girls performing their first British live gig for the Prince's Trust 21st anniversary concert at the Manchester Opera House. They break royal protocol by kissing the Prince of Wales on the cheek and even pinching his bum. The Spice Girls arriving for tonight's gala performance and their first ever live concert in Britain. They walked in through the stage door at the back of the building. Shortly afterwards, Prince Charles arrived at the front. And this was the moment when girl power met the prince. Perhaps sensing his royal highness was a little bit anxious, Mel B, also known as Scary Spice, tried to put him at his ease. After asking for an invitation to dinner, she then brushed off his protests and gave him a kiss. Emma, known as Baby Spice, asked about the young princes, but Jerry was more interested in their father and refused to spare his blushes. Oh, no! And then even more lipstick was applied to Charles's cheek. Or did they? Because... We're, what, 26 years on from that now. And they broke so many different bits of royal protocol. Jerry also told him that she thought he was very sexy and allegedly pinched his bum. However, she says she merely touched his bum or patted it, but did not pinch. There was no pinch. Her justification was patting him on the bottom was against royal protocol. But we're all human. I mean, look... We're all human. We're just ordinary men. Just innocent men. But Ash, they may have another opportunity to finish what they started. They may not have pinched in 97, but they could pinch in 2023 because, bit of breaking news here, it's being reported that all five Spice Girls are set to reunite to perform for the coronation of King Charles. Well, funnily enough, Jerry, in the last quote I've got here from her, said... He's part of our heritage and the landscape of the Spice Girls. We consider him a Spice Boy. <laughs> I mean, a fucking old Spice Boy, maybe. Hey, that's good. There's a quote here talking about the incident saying the prince hasn't been publicly embarrassed like this since he last tried breakdancing in reference to a 1985 video of the prince being pulled onto the dance floor by a group of teenagers where he proceeded to show off his move. Mate, I need to find that video. I need to see the once prince, now king, basically cutting up a cabbage patch i would love to see that as well also i mean yeah if if the rumors are to be true we could see all five of them back together and you know what 20 odd years after the event 26 years after the event perfect timing really to pinch him on the bum again yeah pinch the king on the bum how many royal protocols they're breaking there 
But it's not all fondling royalty, Luke. There's other stiff go other stiff. Other stiff. <laughs> well, there was something stiff. <laughs> yes, it was Victoria. But there's other <laughs> stuff going on this month as well. There is, yeah. On the 17th, Olive topped the UK box office with You're Not Alone, while Soulblade topped the video game charts. On the 21st, Radiohead releases one of my favorite albums of all time, OK Computer. It is okay to like that album. It's not being a hipster. While on the 31st, Eternal topped the charts with I Want to Be the Only One. While on the same day, in you know, news that's certainly pertinent to us, Michael Grade steps down from the role of chief executive of Channel 4 and is replaced by Michael Jackson. Not that Michael Jackson, but, you know, TV's Michael Jackson. Yes, a different Michael Jackson. Maybe the one that was doing the celebrity impersonation on Games Master. Who knows? But, you know, Michael Gray stepping down. Good. You can fuck off. I don't like Michael Gray. <laughs> he cancelled Doctor Who. Trick. <laughs> but, Ash, before we do leave the month of May, is there anything in the magazine that we want to cover? Just a little one. It's actually something I alluded to last month, which is Sony Snatch Nintendo. Rare hit in poaching raid. Oh, rare, eh? Yeah, so not Argonaut, as was kind of hinted in the PlayStation rumours. Sony have upped the pressure on Nintendo by helping themselves to some of the big-end people at Top Developers Rare. The team, who worked on flagship Nintendo titles like Donkey Kong, Killer Instinct and Goldeneye, have set up their own company called Eighth Wonder, which has very kindly been financed by Sony. In return for their cash, Sony have got the rights to publish the company's first three PlayStation games and first refusal on another three. According to the team at 8th Wonder, they wanted to join Sony's ranks because they viewed them as the market leader and that the PlayStation was the most versatile of the next generation consoles. Mm. While no details were available about what kind of games are in development, the first is due to be released in the first half of next year. The defection will cause little damage to Rare, who are 25% owned by Nintendo, but it does go to show how leading developers are starting to view the console market. Sony, needless to say, are a bit chuffed. Because holy hell, that is a hell of a thing to say about, you know, the company that essentially bought you, owned you, helped fund you in developing some of the most respected games of the past generation and now this generation, and you defect to set up your own company, slide into bed with Sony, because they are the market leader. Well, they don't really go in the end, do they? Because there's like the Nintendo Rare relationship stays strong for for many years because they got games out on the N64, including Donkey Kong 64. Well, okay, so we get this news article here. Eighth Wonder did exist. Specifically, they were approached by Sony, a group of developers. They did go and form their own company. There was a deal for three games and the possibility of three afterwards. And at this point, you had uh, Oliver Davis, not that one, a different Oliver Davis, Oliver Norton, Steve Patrick, Jeff Stafford, Christopher Gage and Adrian Smith. They were all Rare employees and they left to form Eighth Wonder. They were working on essentially a Bomberman clone Uh, I've got an article here, a post by Jamie Hemmings, who was an artist working on the game, and that was going to be their first title. But then people left, Adrian Smith left first, and then Andrew Wood and Jamie Hemmings was brought on board. The title was shown at E3 1998, and then at some point after that, with uh, about three months left, Sony pulled the plug on the game, and then... Eighth Wonder as an entity were gone before the end of 1999. So they were a studio that were essentially set up by people poached by Sony, but they never actually got a game out. Oh, that's a shame. 
And if you go to like uh, Unseen 64, they've got a bunch of screenshots, they've got a bunch of in-development, and the game does look kind of fun. It definitely looks like a Bomberman clone. Like, almost, I would almost say that there's a chance that the reason it was cancelled is because of threats of legal <laughs> disputes, because I think they would, have the, uh, they would have the possibility of doing that. But it does look like a very fun game, and the graphics do have... They've got a rare vibe to them, you know? They, mm. There's there's a couple of screenshots and I'm seeing bits of kind of Banjo and Kazooie type stuff in there that you would see come out. But yeah, so Sony did poach developers from Nintendo and then kind of biffed it or just <laughs> lost interest or lost faith or decided to move on. Maybe decided they they just didn't have what that Sony were looking for at that point because also at that point... Sony would have been well into the development cycle for the PS2. So they'd probably been cutting money from any PS1 development and putting money into bigger developers who were looking to develop for the PS2. And we go into the last month that we'll be covering on this episode, June. And on the first absolute power tops the UK box office, while on the seventh, we have a new number one at the top of the music charts. It's Hanson's Mbop. A song that I loved then hated, and now love again. I've actually got a lot of respect for Hanson, a band still going to this day, and in fact, some of their more recent tracks have been certifiable bangers, although not on the global success scale that Umbot was. But here you were with a band made up of siblings, all musically talented, all capable of writing their own songs, playing their own instruments, and it was kind of the anti-boy band. Yeah. Or anti you know, pop band, you take that to a degree. I know they can write their own songs and stuff like that, but you're anti-NSYNC, you're anti-Spice uh, Girls, certainly, where they were doing everything themselves. And they were also, whereas the Spice Girls in particular, as a direct competitor, were edgy. They were fondling royalty. They were doing this, that, and the other. Hanson were just wholesome. They were just nice boys. And a song like Umbop, you've got kind of a lot of Americana history there. You've got bits of doo-wop. You've got bits of the Beach Boys as well, particularly with the harmonies. And it was the perfect song for the summer. It was bright. It was light. It was just fun. I love the song. I think the song is great. I thought it was great at the time. Uh, like you, I probably went through a similar thing of you love it uh, when it came out in 97, but sort of the older you get, the more like, oh no, maybe that song is actually quite lame. But actually, when you listen to it now as an adult and you can reflect on it properly, it's a great little song. It's a great little ditty. It is not just it's a perfectly serviceable song. It's really well composed. It is catchy as all get out. And it is very well performed. And it is an, it's number one for ages as well. It's number one for ages. And it featured on lots of best ofs of the year. It won a fair few awards. And even now, when you talk about the 100 greatest songs of the 90s, Hanson Umbot will often be in that top 100, depending on who's doing it. It will always come up. I mean, 2021, Rolling Stone magazine slash website ranked it as the ninth best boy band song of all time. That's a pretty good accolade. Especially when you think boy bands could also, if you are using the definition fairly liberally and going back through history, that could include the Jacksons, that could include the Beatles. I have also got, I mean, I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with Hanson, uh, and not just because, you know, when you get into sort of your teenage years and your 20s, you're like, oh, no, I never liked that song. It was always rubbish. I Liar! <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Or just fool. When I was a late teen... I had long hair. I'd grow my hair out long because I'm 
fucking metal, mate. My hair was incredibly straight. Like, there was no kink to it whatsoever. There was no kinky to it whatsoever. It was as straight as an arrow. No matter how much you like try and like make it dirty or anything, it always looked sleek and shiny. I looked like a, a Pantene advert all the time. But it also meant I looked a lot like a member of Hanson. To the point when I was out drinking one night in Reading. Oh no, it wasn't Reading, sorry. I went to one of my friend's house. I was in Bristol. And I was very, very drunk, and uh, I was approached by someone even drunker than I, who was convinced I was from Hanson. Then start, and I so I started playing up to it, saying like, "No, absolutely, yeah, no, me, me brothers aren't really with us at the moment." And just talking to her in my normal voice, but she was convinced that I was. Then started singing umbop at me and got the words wrong. So I then went fucking ballistic. I mean, like, if you're going to sing my song, at least sing it at me correctly. How did that go down, Lou? <laughs> she just kept singing the song badly at me. God. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, like, frantically scrolling my, uh, my Facebook page because there is a picture of me with long hair. I think I've seen a picture. I think you've shown me a picture. And, yeah, yeah I can see that you could have been Luke Hansen. Exactly, yeah. I've, I've got the face shape for it as well. Like my brother's mates, obviously my brother's are six years older than I am, so his mates are also six years older than I, used to take the piss out of us so hard for looking like a member of Hanson. That and the fact that I'm also the spitting image of Hilary Swank when I had long hair, that was even more of a bloody hell, you look like Hilary Swank, you. Which, I mean, I know you've used the Hilary Swank joke a number of times in the history of this podcast. Which would you rather be mistaken for today, Hillary Swank or a member of Hanson? Hmm. I think probably the Hillary Swank's a harder one because I haven't got the uh, the hair for it anymore. I haven't really got the hair for the Hanson one either. I'm happy with either, really, because they're all nice. They're all good-looking people. Yeah, Hanson certainly are lovely people. They appear to be just as bloody wholesome as you'd expect them to. Pricks. <laughs> speaking of pricks speaking of pricks on the 8th we've got a new film at the top of the uk box office and it's legit one of my favorite movies ever con air he's a u.s ranger highly decorated did a little hell raising when he was a kid but nothing serious he's defending his wife Got in a drunken brawl. And he killed the guy. Could have happened to you or me. After serving the last of his sentence, Cameron Poe is taking the first plane home to his wife and daughter. Today's flight is a special one. We're populating Louisiana's Felton Penitentiary. These guys are the worst of the worst. I see a lot of celebrities among us. I see 11 primetime lives, three regions of Kathy Lee's, and a genuine 2020 interviewee. What you looking at, punk? Nothing, I was just admiring your cage. But one wrong flight. Stewardess, what's the end flight movie today? <laughs> can ruin your whole day. Welcome to Con Air. Jailbird 1, you are not cleared for takeoff. And nobody on this aircraft gives a flyer. I had not watched Con Air for more than a decade. Probably actually since it got maybe its network television premiere following this release. And then, I want to say it was last year, either ITV or Film 4 showed Con Air. And I missed the first 10 minutes, but boy howdy, I was there for the rest of it because... This film 
has aged so weirdly, but it is a bloody good time. And you you want to talk about Hanson hair. Nick Cage has got the long locks of flowing in this one. And he has got a flawless accent in it as well. There's not anything to be criticised about his accent work within Carnair. Put the burner down. School is very important. There is not a year that goes by that my wife and I do not watch this movie. We will sometimes watch this film two, three times a year. Because if we get to a Friday night and we're like, what do we fancy watching? I just want to watch Con Air. Like, it's this and Face Off are like our two sort of go-to action movies that we just will want to throw on just to be like, uh, oh, I want to shut my brain off for an hour and a half and watch a great 90s action movie. These are the two movies we turn to. And yet she won't watch Star Trek with you on Paramount. <laughs> no, she won't. It's not wacky enough, Ash. Like, it's <laughs> Face Off, is that's the wacky direction she wants to head. Mate, Star Trek 4, they save whales. Well, I've, I've, I've had this argument before. She won't have it. What's wackier than that? Face-swapping technology. And plus, Nick Cage and John Travolta performances. But if Nick Cage was in a Star Trek movie, do you reckon she'd go for it? Maybe. Uh, if he was doing a funny accent, that would probably convince her even further to, to jump on board for it. But it's not just Nick Cage that's great in this movie. John Malkovich is amazing in this movie. He's so, so good as the villain he's steve buscemi is awesome in it ving rames is awesome in it it is a brilliant john cusack is great in the movie there's not a bad thing about con air everyone in that movie gives 110 percent and always in the right direction <laughs> i did interview simon west um because obviously he does the tomb raider movie uh, so i interviewed him for the book and uh he mentioned in there that jj abrams did a script rewrite for Con Air because that's what Abram, that's how Abrams got his start in the industry was doing script rewrites and stuff. He got a, he did a, an uncredited rewrite on Con Air, and the reason he goes uncredited, um, at least according to Simon West, that it's is because only one line of dialogue from his script makes it into the final movie. However, according to Simon West, J.J. Abrams was paid more than he was for that one line of dialogue, effectively. <laughs> That's Hollywood for you, man. Oh, very much so. Moving on, on to the 10th, we've got the debut of DocuSoap Driving School on BBC One. That really is a sign of the times that we're moving into getting more and more of those. While on the 14th, Mario Kart 64 tops the video game charts and apparently is disappointing, according to Games Master. I'm sorry. I still think it's the best Mario Kart. Me too. I look forward to your tweets and emails. And on the 15th, everyone got their multi-pass to go and see The Fifth Element as it topped the UK box office. Where do you stand on The Fifth Element? Uh, just to the right and oh, kind yeah. of half a step back. Yeah. But with my hand on one hip in kind of a casual, oh, really? Kind of way. <laughs> as was the style at the time. It was my friend at school's favourite movie. I genuinely love The Fifth Element. I think it is a masterclass of design. I think it is so beautifully European. Mm -hmm. And it is, I think it's great. I genuinely love The Fifth Element. It is absolutely bonkers and batshit. And I haven't watched it in a long time. And I should rectify that. I should rectify it as well, because I've not seen it in ages. It is it's bonkers, to, to say the least, but Bruce Willis is having a great time. There's a very good video essay I would recommend about it called Born Sexy Yesterday uh, on YouTube, but there's like some really like great stuff throughout there. I think Mili Jovovich is really, really good in it. It's such a fun film. There's some great practical prop work, some great model work, some fantastic costume design. 
it's just a it's a fun time luke and who could forget the great line i only speak two languages english and bad english at least enough to get a gcse uh, but on the 21st, we've got a new game at the top of the charts. And this is another one I had for the PC. So it was a real like, this is very much in my wheelhouse. Carmageddon. A.K.A. Controversy Ageddon. <laughs> A.K.A. A Death Race tying game for a movie that was never made. Absolutely, bloody exactly. There was meant to be a sequel to Roger Corman's Death Race. It was through various levels of pre-production. It was cancelled, but by the time it was cancelled, progress on the game had already been made. They'd even come up with a new physics engine, which kind of is still... There are some bits of that physics engine to do with how objects meet and um, conservation of momentum and things like that, that games today still don't do quite as well. And that this game did. It was uh, it was using an existing game engine, but the physics engine was something complete uh, created completely new. But, oh my God, this was this was more controversy to a degree than I think Mortal Kombat ever had because this went to court. Oh, yeah. This, this was released in multiple versions across multiple countries. The version that was first released over here, all the pedestrians became zombies and, like, bled green blood. But eventually, there was a patch that mysteriously leaked onto the internet that let you set it back to how it was. Although, they did eventually get to release it as it was originally made after I think it was like 10 months, the BBFC's basically decision was overturned. The appeal worked and they released it as originally intended. But I remember getting this game and I remember hiding this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a game that we had this must have been in 97. If not 97, then it was certainly in 1998. And it was not a game that you played if mum and dad were around. You sort of played this one in secret. We, I was just like, because, you know, that, that that was the style of the time and that sort of like blood violence and uber gore was very much an appealing thing at that time. And I was really into Carmageddon. I don't remember like doing, like really playing through the story or going through a lot of the races, but just doing races every now and again, just to go through and run over people and all that sort of stuff. Plus, you know, for me, it's got plenty of Fear Factory songs on the soundtrack as well, so I was really into it from that aspect. But this blood patch that mysteriously appeared online, rumours were that it was someone within the development team that released it. Turns out those rumours were true <laughs> because it was actually released by the head of Stainless Games. Patrick Buckland released the patch on the internet himself. Apparently, SCI were in on it. The kind of like the, the actual publishers were in on it. And the blood code was actually written into the game before it went gold. Oh, amazing. All this patch was, was a dummy file. It was a dummy file that contained no useful information. And the patch dropped that file into the game's folder. And when you booted the game, the game was already pre-programmed to look for that dummy file. And if that dummy file existed, the uncensored version launched. So they could probably talk about it now because Statue of Limitation and the game's available uncensored anyway. But they saw it coming. They knew the problems they were going to have and they, they protected themselves from it. However, it was only top of the game charts for one week as ISS64 topped the video game charts on the 28th, the same day that Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You, the tribute to Biggie Smalls, uh, tops the UK charts, a song that is accredited as the big change in hip-hop and how hip-hop moved into a brand new R&B style uh, as we got into the late 90s and into the early 2000s. While on the same day here on our shores, the Hacienda nightclub in Manchester closes, later demolished and turned into flats. But speaking of flat, 
<laughs> no, I will. Okay, we are ending this on the highest of high notes. Sure, we had Con Air at the top of the box office. Sure, we had Fifth Element at the top of the box office. But it's time for the best movie of 1997 to reach our shores. Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. is the way the world could end. Please, show some mercy. With ice. With a kiss. With venom. I probably should have mentioned this. I'm poison. Poison ivy. And the only man who can stop them. I freeze. I'm Batman. Can't do it alone. Batman will watch his beloved Gotham perish. Bundle up, boys. There's a storm coming. As I think we covered before, I did go back and rewatch this. I rewatched it in preparation for an appearance on the What's Wrong with Wolfie podcast alongside N64 Life's Cliff Foster. And I have come to the conclusion that it is definitely a film. In the same way that Transformers the movie is a toy advert, this is a toy advert. In fact, during like script meetings for this movie, toy companies were in the room so they could pitch ideas. The, Mr. Freeze's gun was designed by the toy company. The directive that Joel Schumacher had was make it toyetic. In, the, in Warner Brothers' mind, Batman Forever was not bright and neon and toyetic enough, so he had to up his game when it came to Batman and Robin to make sure that this movie was there to sell the toys, was there to sell the merchandise, was there to sell in the various tie-ins that they've got. Did it go down well with the Batman fans? Absolutely not. But he was... Schumacher was trying to ebb the style of Dick Springs. There's a Games Master name for you. Dick Springs you know, like art style that he did for the 60s Batman show. He was trying to be within Batman lore. It's just that it's a movie that was liked by studio heads, but not really by audiences. But really, at the end of the day, a movie like this isn't designed for movie audiences. It's designed for studio heads and leaders of toy companies and whatever tie-in market things that they've got. As long as they're happy then the studio will have probably loved this movie. I do like some of the designs in it. I think some of the design and set work and everything is very, very good. And yes, would have made fabulous toys, even if the fact you can tell they're designed as toys means the design of the vehicle itself makes no sense. No, absolutely not. I mean, literally, the characters change costumes at the end of the movie because you've now got three more toys that you can release based off the uh, based on this movie. And George Clooney stepped in to replace Val Kilmer because, in Joel Schumacher's words, he half quit and we half fired him. You know, he wasn't easy to work with on Batman Forever, so he instead decided to go and work on the less controversial Island of Dr. Monroe. Yeah, nothing bad happened with that movie <laughs> at all, did it, Luke? No, it didn't. No, that was plain sailing, the Island of Monroe. Like, absolutely nothing bad happened whatsoever. George Clooney was actually just a suggestion by the studio. They were like, I think he'll be great because he's the hottest guy on ER, so why not put it? And that was big news. The, you know, the heartthrob of ER 
is going to be in a Batman movie. I remember that being like huge like on, you know, sort of entertainment programs and things like that at the time. But Joel Schumacher wanted to do William Baldwin. That was his first choice to put on the suit. Uh, but the studio were really insistent that they got Clooney instead. That's, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess in a way. Put this way, I think Clooney was actually a good choice. I think he had a great look, much as I think Ben Affleck is a great choice for Batman. And I'm sad that we never got the Batfleck standalone film because I think there was a great tale to tell there about an older Batman. I think Ben Affleck would have been a great, you know, give maybe another five, six years, a great Dark Knight Returns Batman. I think Ben Affleck could be kind of like a bit more grizzled, a bit older, a bit more stubble. Go for it. Alicia Silverstone was cast as Batgirl. Really, she was the one and only choice uh, to play that role. While the role of Poison Ivy that went to Uma Thurman did apparently go through Demi Moore, Sharon Stone and Julia Roberts uh, before it ended up with Uma Thurman. But I would wager some of that is just studio heads presenting a list of names they would like to be in the movie. However, the biggest star of the film and the one who was paid the most, I believe he was paid something like $15 million for the role was Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. Hey, everyone, chill. Mm. The other actors apparently considered for the role were Ed Harris, Anthony Hopkins, and Patrick Stewart, although Joel Schumacher has poo-pooed a few of those. He's definitely said that Patrick Stewart was never in the conversation, which would have been a real shame, because imagine Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze. That would have been amazing. I think it would have been too good for that movie, though. Doing those lines, <laughs> doing, doing some of those incredible uh, ice puns, what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. Not even factually correct. But I have got a lot of love for Batman and Robin. It's not a good movie, but I think people take it far too seriously. It is a comedy movie. Its biggest crime is it's not a funny movie. It's one big toy ever. There's a line, Poison Ivy literally says in the movie, every Poison Ivy action figure comes complete with him, pointing towards Bane. The irony is that they didn't come as a two-pack. It is, though, I, I think it is a fascinating piece of bat lore hated hated by its fan base at the time derided over the years but is now seeing that tide turn and more people appreciate it for what it was trying to be and trying to and what it was attempting to be i also think it's got a pretty decent soundtrack as well a really good song uh, by the smashing pumpkins the beginning of the end is the beginning which was then sorry i didn't get this right the end of the beginning is the end was the A side and the B side was the beginning of the end is the beginning, which was actually then used for the Watchmen trailer, uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen trailer. I, I think it's the better version. I think the, the B side is the better version. I'm glad we got to end this episode on that because I like Batman and Robin and I will stand by that movie. Uh, me and Steve from Going In Raw, we're like the big supporters of Batman and Robin and Steve from Going In Raw has said, and I agree with him on this, I'd much rather watch Batman and Robin than The Dark Knight Rises, because at least Batman and Robin stays within its own law, and it knows what film it is, and it remains being that movie, whereas The Dark Knight Rises doesn't know what movie it is, and often paints outside of the lines of what it's trying to be. I would absolutely agree with you on that. And while I may not have the love for Batman and Robin that you do, I love the love that you have for it, because I can see that you're not oblivious to its many, many flaws, but you love it regardless of them. And you love the movie for the movie knowing what it is. I want to drive the car. Chicks dig the car. And Batman retorts, this is why Superman works alone. And fights a giant mechanical spider. <laughs> Come on, it's got references to Superman in it. There's also references to Superman and Batman Forever, but no one wants to talk about those. 
Ash, before we wrap up this podcast, before we wrap up June, what's happening in that magazine? Well, you remember how last month we had a couple of quotes from quite a bolshy Sega rep who was unnamed, who said, Nintendo, of course they sold out. They control the flow to make everything a sellout. And Sony, we're not worried about it. We knew they were going to try something like this. We've already got our bundles sorted. £99. Sega make first move in new price war. Crikey. Get down to Curry's and Dixon's fast because they've dropped the price of the Sega Saturn to an irresistibly low £99. According to Sega, it's not an official price drop yet, but they have no objection to Curry's or Dixon's doing it and will be offering the same deal to other retailers soon. Now that sounds like Curry's and Dixon's have got inventory to shift <laughs> and Sega are like... Oh, shit. We, we, I, guess, I guess we try and ride this one out. Yeah, that's pretty much what it sounds like to me. Sega are anticipating Sony would announce another drop in price at the forthcoming E3 video game show. Apparently at the time, they were saying that the PlayStation could drop as low as £79. Whoa, that's a steal. But it never did. No. Well, not, not in this timeline. But yeah, so Sega kind of unofficially launch a new price war or more Curry's and Dixon's do it on Sega's behalf. It's the only way we're going to get rid of these bloody things. Now, just to wrap up, though, can you talk about your price wars? Nintendo, having only launched just recently at 249, dropped the price of the N64 to 149. Really? This soon after its release? Yeah, it's so soon. It happened between last issue and this issue of the magazine. That's nuts. Also, you'd be pretty friggin' annoyed, wouldn't you, if you bought one on release? And couldn't get hold of them. People were really pissed that they got one on release and that the price had dropped already, to the point where they started contacting magazines, Watchdog, The Games, to complain about it. And The Games decided to respond by sending punters free joypads, memory cards, or even games if they rang a hotline and could prove that they bought their Nintendo 64 for £250. However, that was a strictly limited offer that ran from May 1st to May 25th and is now over. So chances are, by the time people would have read this magazine and found out about it, they'd be sod out of luck. And Games Master Magazine say that the first thing they heard about this hotline was when people started calling them to complain and when they called for clarification found out that by the time this magazine would go to print the offer would already be over that's insane is there any reason given as to why they dropped it because it's not even like it's just a little price drop it's a massive price drop it's the price of a sega saturn price drop i mean we talked last month or in last month's magazine sony are dropping their price nintendo dropped their price in response some of sega's retailers dropped their price in response and sega are like oh crap we better make sure everyone else can do that price drop it's a crazy price war I had forgotten Nintendo did this. I'd massively forgotten Nintendo did this so soon after release. I'm sure I'd have been pissed off at the time. I was going to say, I can't even remember it now. That's a great point. You're a day one purchaser. Well, day day one, day two. Yeah, but But you know what I mean. Ish. Yeah, but I can't remember being that annoyed. I probably just kept my head down and hoped my parents didn't notice because otherwise they'd have been all, oh, you're wasting your money on that (laughs) console. (laughs) It's actually a news item that makes me, not annoyed because that's not the right word, gutted that Games Master wasn't on the air because that would have been a really interesting news item on Games Master. I would have really been intrigued to get Dominic Diamond's perspective on that. Ash, I think we're going to have to put a stop to our journey there. 
Next week, we'll be going through July, August, September, October, and half of November as we get towards Series 7. And there's some really big bits coming up uh, next week. You know, not only just the movies and that, but also the death of a princess. Oh, God, we're going to keep it light then. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a really uh, fun time next week, I guess. But, you know, there's also the Lost World Jurassic Park, so there's that. And a Castlevania Symphony of the Night review. Yes, which Ash has been teasing me about uh, with this, saying that it's a review I'm very much... And I have got a bold prediction that I want to give when we get to it next week. In fact, I'll say it now, before we get to next week's episode, is one of the big complaints about the game, it's 2D. Well, I guess we'll find out next week. (laughs) We'll find out next week. What a tease. But I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. If you want to check us out on social media, we're on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of Games Master, retro gaming and pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord. And you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra and Under Console Nation, our bonus podcast. And at the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. But Ash, that's not all. What else do they get? Oh, at that £10 level, they get a glittery golden joystick waggle and mug, which is stuffed with badges, stickers, sweeties, retro trading cards, all that good stuff. I carefully nestle it inside a box and I sit on it for weeks at a time, waiting for it to hatch, waiting for wings to sprout from it. And then I open a window and it flies away. Does it survive? Does it prosper? Does it have mugs of its own? Luke, I just don't know. But hopefully the mug gets to them, right? I mean, sure, if you want. <laughs> and shout out to those £10 backers. Zach, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Selena, Sean, Richard, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Phil, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Mark, Link, Liam, Kylie, Kevin, Joe, Joe Trigg, Joe Mitchell, Jamie, Ian, Ian, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I am Cheadle, Harriet Manka Girl, Gordon Debster, Gordon Brands, David White, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Chris Price, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Alexis, Adam Warrington, Adam D, Colin, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.